0: Hello, dear patrons. We're back. This is the rest of our conversation with Stefan. Hope you enjoy it.
1: How important do you think our volunteer, I mean, you've mentioned about, you know, kind of volunteers being deployed in kind of undermanned, um, overwhelmed units in East, um, in Ukraine. But how how important do you think it is for morale on the ground? I mean, how did that seem to you with Kurds? And how do you think it might work in Ukraine?
2: Yeah, I for think The morale
1: of Ukrainians and Kurds?
2: I mean, certainly in 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 Rajava, we were massively appreciated um, by the people there. Like incredible, like you know, you like shake your hand on the street and like all this kind of stuff. And you know, uh, you know, it was it was quite bizarre. Like it was for me, it's kind of like an anti-social anarchist. It was like a completely <laughs> kind of transformative process as I suddenly became like like a completely respected member of of society. You know, like I'd gone from you know like squatting in a squat to becoming like kind of one of the most respected members of, of society in a country by completely normal people. And that was obviously incredibly uh, uh,
3: good for kind of purging me of kind of negative, uh, negative politics. Mm. I mean, would you still uh, say you're an anarchist or has, has that no. has that now been transformed into a, a, a more, I don't want to say anarchism is necessarily antisocial, but into a more <laughs> a more pro-social... I um, know, yeah, like I, I first to... became
2: kind of like a social anarchist, a more social anarchist. But then I think I decided that kind of the the political system in Rajava was not really compatible with anarchism. Uh, the kind of the party structure wasn't really compatible with anarchism, and that kind of pushed me towards being like first a libertarian socialist. But now, I mean, I just I think it's a bit pointless to describe yourself. But if someone asks me, I'll just say I'm a Marxist or a communist or
3: whatever. No, I guess uh, yeah, I guess th- the sort of. In, to a certain extent labels a secondary but it's interesting to sort of to hear you describe that that experience and um, you know I guess what what effect it would have um, yeah I mean it's,
2: I've I've I wrote about quite a lot kind of the Rajava is kind of alleviating this kind of anti-social politics a lot in my forthcoming book how to stop being a teenage
3: nihilist? Oh, excellent. That's a great Yeah, time. that's great. Plug, uh, plug the book. Plug it as much as I possible. Just,
1: but I want to, I just want to, so I guess... I still haven't the, talked about
2: the Ukrainian volunteers, but I will. Well,
1: and also, I just wanted to tie it in because so I, it's a debate. I mean, I teach, I kind of, or I teach, touch upon um, the Comintern kind of army in the Spanish Civil War. Um, As part of the courses that I've taught at the University of Kent. And one of the, you know, I mean, I'm not an expert on it by any means, but one of, I know one of the historiographical debates about the international brigades in the Civil War is how important were they militarily, you know, and um, there's, you know, kind of, it's one of these open ended debates with different sides in it. So I'm just curious, you know, how do you view the military effectiveness or off the back of your experience and, you know, kind of your networks and so on? How do you think, how are they more mainly politically important or do they, can they, make a kind of a military difference, or maybe it's kind of, uh, you know, maybe the question itself is misconceived.
2: Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think they're always going to be a small minority, even when they are, like in the Spanish Civil War, very large, and they're often going to be kind of quite disconnected and ragtag uh, if they're leftist, um, less m- much less likely to have military experience. But from my experience in Rojava, um, our units of internationals were considered kind of some of the most effective units out there and kind of um, like kind of uh, battalion commanders would be like very happy to have like a a platoon of international volunteers in their unit because they were some of the kind of most effective and kind of organized uh, and disciplined fighters. Um, Because of course, you know, the Epicase of People's Army of kind of like a pretty staggering share of the population of Rojava, which is quite heavily populated region, up to several percentage boxes is in the military. So the people in there are often quite normal people um, while volunteers are heavily, heavily self-selected Yeah, uh, who managed to get there. Um, so,
0: I mean, you know, with uh, international socialism hanging by a thread is, <laughs> as, as you put it um, with that, you know, with that in mind, you know, the, the war nerd, the podcast uh, reckons that the PKK and its affiliates are man for man, probably the best mountain infantry in the world. So I guess, you know, this would be the ultimate nerdy question uh, for podcasters and maybe former guerrillas uh, who'd win in a fight. You know, ISIS, uh, Azov or, or the YPJ for that matter, the YPG.
2: I think Azov probably aren't up to the same level. I think Azov are kind of, well, they were, they kind of, Azov, as traditional Azov has been deleted. They were successfully denazified. But obviously, it's mm-hmm. led to then 10 more Azov brigades being formed. But I think the Azov Brigade was like a pretty effective unit, quite, quite good, very disciplined, obviously, that they held out for so long in, in Mariupol. But they didn't, they don't have kind of the experience and kind of the insanely kind of uh, experienced military commanders that PKK has. Um, and so obviously, I mean, you know, who would, who would win between ISIS and, 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 and PKK if we cut it down to those two? Just read a history book, mate. We did. <laughs> very good. Very good. Um, well, at least you can't you but, can't let the ni- so-
0: you can't let the nihilists win whether you're whether you're fighting teenage uh, nihilist tendencies or uh, or actually ISIS on the ground.
2: But I, I think in Ukraine, for the volunteers, I think they can be used effectively. I think, for instance, in Severodonetsk, um, they threw in the volunteers for for a couple of weeks there, and they managed to turn the tide briefly for about a week there, and kind of extend the defense of that city for a couple of weeks. But they're kind of a very limited resource uh, that you don't kind of want to waste. And it's a big problem. Like the thing is, if you get 100 Ukrainians killed, you can kind of conceal that in the media. But if you get 100 Americans concealed, uh, well, Americans talk. I mean, military wives talk. Western military wives will, will tell everyone everything. And so kind of concealing this kind of stuff and controlling the media narrative once you involve Westerners becomes a lot harder.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's a really good
2: point, actually, yeah. I wanted to turn, I guess, for the
0: last bit of this, uh, to look at the prospects for Ukraine, Uh, because you've written a bit about this. Uh, We're going to link to it as well, as I mentioned. Um, The effect of, you know, both Syria and Ukraine uh, is that the involvement of foreign volunteers as well as uh, Western and, uh, well, foreign in general, foreign financial and military support is that Uh, It often is the benefit of the worst people in both countries, you know, Islamists or indeed maybe fascists or neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Uh, How do you see all this playing out? I mean, it's hard to think of an end game for the Ukraine war right now. But, uh, you know, I guess the stated aim of Putin to denazify Ukraine uh, might very well end up having the the opposite effect.
2: Yeah, I I think definitely we're looking at a scenario where instead of Ukraine being denazified and demilitarized, Ukraine is going to be nazified and militarized. Yeah. Um, for instance, recently there was a battle on two twin cities on a river, um, Severodonetsk and in, Lysychansk, in and the Russians engaged quite in, engaged in quite an effective military operation. They first took Severodonetsk, which was on the east bank, and then through a series of shaping offensives in the south, basically enveloped Lushansk. To the sufficient degree that kind of the Ukrainians were forced to withdraw from there. But as a plan to demilitarize Ukraine, uh, the U- Russians move so slowly with kind of their artillery strategy that all these kind of elite and effective units of Ukrainian military, including foreign volunteers, mechanized units, and so on, were able to safely withdraw from this pocket. And so instead of kind of having a decisive battle in Donbass, there's only one more city, one more major city to capture. In, um, in in Donbass, Slovansk, the Russians have not managed to destroy the Ukrainian military. And instead, apart from Mariupol, rather than giving a decisive, heroic last stand, the Ukrainians have withdrew their forces further. And so you have a situation coming this winter where the Russians will probably have taken Slavansk, and maybe, you know, kind of they're getting close to Kharkov again, maybe they're getting close to... Um, near here or somewhere else, but the, the war won't be in any way closed in which either side would like. Yeah. Uh, and so then we're looking at a situation over the winter where Ukraine is an absolutely devastated country. Um, I pointed this out in the kind of massification article, but, you know, Ukrainians kind of celebrate strikes on Russian rear positions but every strike on a Russian rear position is a strike on Ukraine. Recently, they've been bombarding bambo- Kherson Bridge. Uh, but this is obviously like a, a Ukrainian, mm-hmm. this is yeah. Ukrainian infrastructure. They obviously continue to claim Crimea while really hyping up. They're constantly trying to hype up the idea of kind of striking the oil rigs there, of striking the bridges there, which obviously this is all officially Ukrainian stuff. And then obviously on the other side, the rest of Ukraine is, is getting battered by Russian cruise missile strikes. And beyond any of that stuff, the economy is, is completely disappearing. Uh, no one's working, no one's getting paid. No one's paying their utility bills. Um, the Ukrainian kind of gas operators is, is nationalized, but it's basically actually, do you know actually what kind of the main source of revenue uh, natural gas is getting at the moment? The main source of revenue is Russia. right? Yeah. Since the war has started, uh, natural gas has been paid a few hundred million dollars by the russians because of transit fees throughout this whole war european heating gas has not just been coming through russia but russia has been paying ukraine to pump it through ukraine and i think that's also important to show how far we are we are away from a total war and what you know obviously the the russians want to call this a special operation and you know people want to call it war but the special operation, military operation kind of uh name isn't kind of absurd in the sense that Russia is not going all out here. Um, and they're kind of still keeping up kind of institutional obligations, they're trying to pay their foreign debt, they're paying the Ukrainians money for various things and, and, and all this kind of stuff. They haven't even suspended the visa regime. Ukrainians mm. can still travel uh, visa free to Russia, though the Ukrainians have recently uh sent it the other way that they've they've banned. Uh, Russians from traveling. But yeah, I think Ukraine is in a, in a very bad position um, where they basically the state has no incomings, has a lot of out, outgoings, including to its military forces, obviously, which they are getting significant aid for. But more important than that is ensuring that the people in what is controlled by Kiev don't spiral into insane poverty. And All indications from the West is that they aren't the West is not prepared to give Ukraine billions of dollars a month for free to keep up their economy. Rather, the indication is that the EU and the US will give them billions of dollars for the military, but are very reluctantly giving them like a billion dollars every three months. And this is a loan. Ukrainian debt is spiraling. Um, I think just today, two interesting reports have came. An interesting report came out today, which basically uh, Ukraine is planning to like engage in a partial default. Like they, they—it's not officially a default. They're basically asking for debt forgiveness, but you know they want to default on their debt. And they've also passed a labor law, which basically excluded people who work at small and medium-sized businesses from labor regulations. Which means that now seventy percent of Ukrainian workers basically have no labor regulations on on how they work. And I think what's important is because this war isn't going to be won militarily in one, in the sense of one side is going to very quickly take over the territory of the other. It's very important if the West wants to win in some significant way, they have to guarantee, they have to be able to guarantee like at least a decent standard of life in Western Ukraine. Because Russia is, because the Russian capital is hemmed in, it's throwing money into the east and if the West doesn't help Russia, Russia will be able to guarantee a significantly higher standard mm. of living in the East and the West, and that this will collapse the legitimacy of, of the Kiev government.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's right. You do raise this prospect of almost of a kind of you know Cold War style um, competition over, you know, economic living standards on either side of, I guess, what would be a very uneasy armistice line between between Russia and the Kiev controlled government and, and NATO effectively. But there's also the prospect here, I guess, of little Nazi statelets effectively controlled by far right elements in in Ukraine. Um, how do you see that playing out? Because I mean that that and then you know, maybe if we can extrapolate beyond that of any kind of blowback that could emerge from that. I mean, we know that a lot of these weapons coming from the West are ending up, you know, who knows where.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because the place that this has happened to a large degree already is, is, is Kharkov. Um, this is where kind of the new Azov are based. There is kind of this one brigade there and three and f- three of the four of the battalions there are Azov, bata- or Azov units or Azov battalions. Now there's no longer an Azov battalion, but there's around 10 Azov battalions throughout the country. And three of them are, are concentrated in, in Kharkov where they um, kind of obviously the problem with this is it's hard to tell how much power they have because no pro-Ukrainian source is willing to say a word about this and so you only hear from pro-Russian sources who who are likely to to massively exaggerate what's going on there but it seems very clear that Azov has a a large-scale kind of political power they're acting as kind of like a extra state police force in, in Kharkov and this is especially kind of like it just kind of, it's been a massive embarrassment to the Turkish state. And uh, the Turkish state. <laughs> we'll get into those in a minute. <laughs> to, the Russian, to the Russian state. Um, because Kharkov is kind of the largest Russian city in, in Ukraine. It's kind of like a, a key part of, of the ima- Russian world, whether that's an imagined place or an actual place. Um, and it was one of kind of, it, as well as kind of um, the Donbass, and especially kind of um, the area which is Russian, Russia is taking now of Slovansk to Lishansk, Kharkov was a, was a major place of, of pro-Russian sentiment and pro-Russian kind of protests and logical protests they attempted to make. It's the only other place apart from Donbass and Luhansk which had like an attempted People's Republic, the Kharkov People's Republic, um, but it was crushed with, with kind of great violence and now is kind of controlled by Nazis and is continually being shelved by Russia continually alienating the people there in this million-strong Russian city who are, you know, each day leaving the Russian world because, of, mm. on one hand, the, the actions of, of Ukrainian far-right paramilitaries and, on one hand, the, the actions of the Russian state.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe just to round this off then, we should double back to Syria. Uh, because it's been knocked off the front pages, to say the least, um, by Ukraine. And I wanted to hear your thoughts, I guess, on what you think happens next there. It's actually interesting to note that, uh, with the exception of Macron, uh, Bashar al-Assad has outlasted all the Western leaders who tried to get rid of him: Obama and Trump in the U.S., David Cameron and Theresa May in the U.K., and Angela Merkel, of course, over a long period in in uh, Germany. Um, so, how do you see that playing? How do you see things playing out in Syria now?
2: So obviously your, your last episode on uh, Rojava was called The End of Rojava. Yeah. But obviously we we see, sit here two and a half years later and it's all going on.
1: And we had, we put a question mark on it.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we always put a question mark to, to give yourself some plausible deniability.
3: Except yeah, the end of the end of history. There's no question mark there. There's a colon. So, um, There was, obviously there's been two Turkish military operations
2: against Rojava uh both were limited in scope. One took the region of Afrin away from Rojava and the other one took the like a border strip between Tel Abyad and Sirikani away from Rojava. But neither of these have been knockout blows. But obviously it places in a situation where what's going to happen to this kind of um this this government where is it just going to slowly be eaten up by Turkey. And obviously it's not just that kind of Turkey engaged in this military operations but they, they continually engage in drone bombings and artillery bombardment. Um, apparently, there was 14,000 incidents of, sorry, 1,400 incidents of shelling just in the month of June against Rojava by, by Turkey. And this is peace. This is apparently peace, um, which is obviously has a devastating um, prospect on kind of efforts on rebuilding or reconstruction. In February, the Americans made a very major move, which was to exclude northeast Syria from U.S. sanctions. Uh, previously, it had been subjected to recent, uh, American sanctions in the sense that if any company operated in Rojava or the rest of Syria, they would be sanctioned by the U.S. And would be, Basically, you had to choose between <laughs> Rojava and the U.S., and obviously no one's going to pick Rojava. Mm. No, no company's going to pick Rojava in this case. And so Rojava was then excluded from these restrictions in February, And this was seemed to be like an incredibly positive move, not just for Rojava, but for the rest of Syria, because obviously, you know, if you import stuff into Rojava, there's open trade between uh, areas controlled by the YPG and the areas controlled by the Syrian government. And so this would basically be a partial sanction lift on all of Rojava, uh, all of Syria, sorry. But the situation is, because of that move, Russia, since then, Turkey has been escalating the situation. And capital is not willing to enter into Rojava because of the situation where Turkey is continually escalating. Basically, as soon as the US said that they were going to lift sanctions on Turkey, Turkey began to talk about a third military operation in Rojava. Today, it seems like there was a a conference between uh, the leaders of, of Russia, Iran, and Turkey. And it seemed that Turkey... Uh, Iran and Russia have rejected, basically. They haven't given permission for Turkey to engage in a third military operation. I but
1: just what- to, sorry, Stefan, I, well, I, I was just wanted to pick your brains about the kind of change geopolitics of Rojava from when you were there. Because it seems like I wanted to ask about the Tehran conference, in fact, which just happened that you just mentioned, because, I mean, it seems like Turkey has much more leeway to do what it wants. Right. And I mean, Russia, you know, Russia is obviously preoccupied with Ukraine, and so they can't really weigh in on the side of the central government in Damascus or, um, you know, in favor, I suppose, of Rojava if they were so inclined. Um, so I, I mean, you know, I just wanted to ask you if you could expand a little on the kind of geopolitics of Rojava at the moment.
2: So what's happened since I left was that there's been much deeper engagement and collaboration with the Syrian government. Um, and so the first movements of this were in the Afrin battle where the Syrian Arab army didn't intervene, but rather the, uh, local defenses forces of two, Um, Shiite towns intervened into the conflict uh, because these areas had been besieged by rebels but had been kept alive from the siege by uh, YPG because on one very small border they kept up a place and so to kind of basically return this honour they joined the fight in Afrin but without kind of the serious support of the Syrian government this was just more light infantry. Um, And this kind of light infantry was kind of torn up in the same way that um, the the Kurdish light infantry was. And then during the second military operation uh, against Rojava, where Trump attempted to withdraw U.S. forces from Syria, but was partially prevented by the U.S. deep state. um, This conflict ended when an agreement was formed between Russia and Turkey, which saw Syrian Arab army forces move in and basically control uh, a large part of kind of the border uh, between um, Syria and Turkey. But these were just kind of, again, it was like infantry that was pushed in. It was kind of sad (laughs) Syrian army Arab conscripts who were just kind of moved and basically used as cannon fodder to essentially Russia just put them in place to say to Turkey, like, if you go forward here, you'll kill some of our boys and we won't be happy. But they themselves didn't have any, probably they were much kind of military less effective than even Yepage were, because they weren't at all motivated to do what they were doing. But what's notable about what's happened in the past few weeks is that, obviously, you're right, that kind of Russia is under more pressure because most of its military is committed in Ukraine. And it's kind of, it's kept up an ambivalent relationship with Turkey, which is very useful for them, especially because of the, the Bosphorus Straits. But as Turkey has maneuvered, they kind of engage in this, you know, they've moved troops around and do all this kind of stuff. They make these blustering statements. The Russian reaction has not been to facilitate this. Instead, the reaction has been the opposite, where Russia has moved significant air forces to the north of the country and engaged in various moves to basically say, like, no, Turkey, you're not having it here. And what's most notable is that Syrian army forces have moved into Tel, Tel Rafat and Manbij, but this time with heavy artillery, with tanks, and with multiple launch rocket systems. So it seems for the first time the Syrian army has committed forces heavier than infantry, and the first time there's been forces heavier than infantry committed to the defense of Rojava against Turkey um, since the kind of conflict began in in Afrin.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Um, That's all been fascinating to hear. Uh, We're going to kind of conclude this but i should ask uh, before we all go and say goodbye what you what you're up to next i mean what have you got coming so you've got this book coming out um which you should tell us about again
2: so yeah i've, I've got a book coming out towards the end of this year the we don't really know when it's going to come out because the plan was obviously for me to become an incredibly famous movie person for, <laughs> but as with all kind of large-scale films it's a, it's a very large-scale film um, like I don't know if people know. Like, oh, there's a movie about. It's like a million, multi-million dollar uh, it's, production. It's a, it's yeah, a, It's yeah. a real, it's a real, real thing. Um, like the scriptwriter was the guy who wrote uh, like Thor and stuff like this. Like it's a, it's not like a top level Hollywood production, but it's kind of in the middle.
3: Um, which, um, which, which, Thor? The first one. Wow, that's pretty you know, good. I mean, do I'm, you know who's you. gonna?
1: Do you know who's gonna play you? Uh,
3: that was my question. Yes.
1: Are you allowed to tell us?
3: No. (laughs) Are you satisfied? No, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you. Well, just just think about
2: Hollywood and think about the fact that they've emphasised my gender and then go look up the very small list (laughs) of assigned male at birth, non-binary actors they are. And and then, you know, do some calculations and you've got at least a 50% chance of getting it right. So we okay. should put some. Sounds like we should make <laughs>
1: some bets then. Um, and they do they. I guess I was thinking like who might play Ochiland, but I, I guess is Ocalan probably won't make an appearance.
2: No, no. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can. That's an interesting thing. Like I, I was I was asking Connor, Colin Con Patrick the the Jacobin contributor, Jacobin editor, and um, partial kind of he he did half of the script. Mm. He's also doing a film about the Millennium Exercises. Where the U.S. forces are pretended to be Iran. Um, oh yeah,
1: I remember. Uh, beat that.
2: beat the, the U.S. forces. He's doing that in collaboration with the the general who won that battle. This imaginary unit battle. Because I, I asked Colin like, oh who who are the characters going to be? And he's like, yeah, there's not there's no there's no real people apart from apart from you. Everyone else is kind of fictional. Um, and yeah, and I can't really outline anything else more than that. But yes, the 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 plan was to have coming out at the same time as this film was my book, which is obviously, it's not based on Rijava, but it's kind of a series of essays around the broad theme of, of, of nihilism, nihilism kind of as a, a political force, something that's really consuming young people and something that personally consumed me and is relevant to the film in the sense that it was my experiences in Rijava, which kind of turned me around from being a, an antisocial kind of anarchist nihilist person but obviously making the point that for basically all young people out there, they can't use the solution I did, that this yeah. isn't a viable <laughs> method. And there's hopefully this book by reading it uh, might be able to get that across without you having to actually go and become a gorilla.
0: That's brilliant. Um, I think one final thing also, you're uh, doing your uh, postgrad now. Uh, what, are you, what are you studying? Because it's something completely unrelated to this sort of stuff.
2: Uh yeah, I do um I'm studying the word privilege. I was just I was just reading White Fragility this morning. Have oh, you guys ever read it? No. In no. in the foreword, uh the guy who does a foreword for her outlines um D'Angelo as <laughs> the
3: new racial sheriff in town.
1: Sounds pretty. Sounds pretty. I mean, honest. That's, yeah, that's about <laughs> right.
3: Yeah. I mean, is, is is that an endorsement or a criticism? Yeah, because that's that sounds... an endorsement. That she's like okay. the new discipliner of kind of white people.
1: Yeah, oh, there you go. The new. Yeah, I mean, but that. I mean, that sounds about right. The new enforcer of a new kind of structure of race relations. Yeah.
2: Yeah, man, I'm. I'm doing that. I mean, I'm working there. You asked kind of at the start of the show what how I ended up in Swansea, um, from Rajava, and I went to to. Swansea just to work with Ashley who is a friend of the show she, she's yes, done, absolutely. she's been on right she's, oh, she's she's been
1: an a episode. episode. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, Ashley's a friend of the show Yeah, uh, Ashley Frawley um, and yeah I went to work with her because she does kind of similar work on, on semiotics semiotics of, of happiness and stuff like this and yeah I'm doing a, a study of the word privilege which at first was kind of like a grand historical blah 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 but then obviously as, as postgraduates go you're like actually I can like study like two things <laughs> and so I'm doing like I've looked at kind of recent academic work, and then kind of or, or directly on privilege, and then kind of uh, the most popular works of of of, of popular of, of popular literature on inequality, which because of what's happened uh, in kind of the past few years, are almost or like nine out of ten of them are focused on racial issues, and kind of despite despite the fact that you know I hadn't I didn't have to search for specifically privileged groups they all at least use privilege at least once and trying to show kind of from the academic stuff how this has gone down to the popular stuff and you know but i know i'm a bit bit fucking sick of it because like (laughs) i'd rather talk about ukraine (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah no indeed uh,
3: understandable spoken For like a course. true a true spoken graduate. like a true price card. Yeah. yeah yeah um I should, actually should, should we say we... that it's been our our privilege to have you on no we probably ah, shouldn't it's been Stephane. our right to have you on <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: All right. I think we'll leave that there, Stefan. It's, uh, it, it has been a privilege. I was joked earlier, but it this has been great. Um, and you'll have to come on uh, when near the time the book comes out to talk to us a little bit more in detail about uh, how not to be a nihilist. Um, and so I don't ask questions like, you know, well, you know, Phil, if uh, if someone was to play you in a Hollywood movie um, as an academic and podcaster, who would it be? You know. <laughs> Is it a serious question? Well, I mean, you know, you can answer it if you like. Um, no, I'm not gonna.
1: I'm not gonna fucking George.
0: Touch
3: that. <laughs> I actually do have an answer, but it's, it just sounds so. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not gonna give it. Mm. maybe maybe that's one that if listeners are sufficiently interested they can hound us with um yeah patreon messages and <laughs> and, and i can yeah say who will play us in the movies and uh, which character which seinfeld characters we will. i, I was
2: trying well. to convince doug of Sublation media to do a show with me called like lowest common denominator where we just steal like kind of what's popular on youtube at the moment and try and do it in some kind of like leftist way by making <laughs> tier lists or whatever but i think a good one for that would be like getting all of the people you know and you're like Stupid podcast fear, and then being like, I want to act in with him. <laughs> well, stay, that's actually stay, a great
1: uh, idea for that. Is actually a great idea.
0: Stay tuned, Bunga listeners. This uh, unfortunately might be what is coming your way because I would really be the lowest common denominator to just steal that idea and do it ourselves. <laughs>
2: Well, it's a threat to Doug. I'll make him listen to this and then be like, Doug, if we don't do Lowest Common Denominator, the Bunga Boys are going to steal it.
0: I'm, I'm always happy with sending threats to Doug. Hi, Doug. <laughs> um, all right. We'll, we're going to have to stop this here. This is getting ridiculous. Stefan, thank you very much. It's been fascinating. And uh, we'll catch you all later uh, another time. Uh, we'll be back in a week. Catch you then. Bye-bye.
2: It was, it was kind of exciting to come on this on something which was not just not live but not coming out for a while to have the potential of your predictions be embarrassed even by the time they go to air. And yeah. to, you know, it, it was it's a bit more exciting that
3: way. Yeah, yeah. no, definitely. You've got, you've got the element of peril. Like, w- what could happen? Oh, where yeah, like ima- imagine, be if,
2: Turkey, imagine if Turkey invades tomorrow and that whole fucking <laughs> section where it's like, oh, blah, 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 yeah. it's useless. Or if, yeah.
1: like, if Liz Truss becomes prime minister and is you know taken down by oh, somebody and, and, else and, the, and the episode
2: doesn't come out because we're all dead
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. That too. yeah yeah exactly well, you, or, or she reveals herself wore... to be a communist and uh you know britain becomes a socialist utopia um, i wasn't
1: thinking that i was thinking more whether about another prime minister outliving uh, or failing to outlive bashar al-assad but anyway oh yeah but the, the
2: funny thing is now that people have started doing that for zelensky that he's like the kiss of death that he's recently like shaking hands with uh the italian prime yes, minister the british that, prime yeah. Yeah. minister and then, then he him who was meant to be in a ditch of Poland in three weeks, has outlived outlived all these Western leaders with their stupid kind of unstable political systems and energy use. Which yeah, <laughs> I mean it's like just fucking ridiculous that the West is like, oh, we're going to sanction you, Russia, and Russia's like, we're going to stop the we're going to stop the gas. Then and they're like, and Europe's like. Oh fuck! We didn't expect this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, know, the one right? thing we didn't yeah. want to happen. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Yeah, of course, yeah. we're going to get our gas instead through Azerbaijan. Yeah, and
0: and and the Russian elite still hasn't democratic you know, toppled allies Putin. In the Caucasus. Uh, yeah, yeah, You know, frustratingly, haven't toppled Putin as they expected them to do. You know, like how. You know?
2: Do you know what? Do you know what would topple Putin? Well, if the Russians withdrew from Ukraine. Yeah, that yeah, would. If yeah, if if yeah. the Russian military abandoned Kursk, abandoned the Donetsk People's Republic, abandoned the Luhansk People's Republic, that's would something that would actually get Russians mad because it would be a total end to the Russian world. That that yeah, that would, would just be a, a foreclosure of it completely.
1: It would be an enormous kind of humiliation, and obviously, there's you know, with no kind of uh, no payoff for all the sacrifice the Russia's already made. It's, I mean, yeah, we'll see. I guess we'll see how it plays out.